Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Green and Black's Organic Chocolate, a selection of ethically sourced flavors combined with a rich cocoa intensity. Welcome back to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. We had our first big night in on Saturday night with Senator Eileen Flynn and it was a fantastic occasion. Eileen was just brilliant, speaking about her life growing up on Ireland's oldest halting site, Labry Park in Ballyfermot in Dublin. The death of her mother when Eileen was only 10, a horrific car crash she was in which left her with lifelong injuries and she also spoke movingly about her very intersectional brand of feminist politics where she's fighting in the Shannon not just for travellers but for all minority groups and those on the edges of society. And all the while as we spoke to our live audience on Zoom, her small baby daughter Billy was babbling away in the background and it was just lovely. We're going to bring you highlights of that next Monday but in the meantime if you haven't bought your tickets to the big night in then you can go to irishtimes.com forward slash big hyphen night hyphen in and get them there. There are five more events to see over the next couple of months. They'll be on every second Saturday night. The next one is editor-in-chief of Glamour Cork woman Samantha Barry on October 14th followed by Catlin Moran on Halloween night. Then we have broadcaster Claire Byrne and four Former state pathologist Mary Cassidy. Our guest on December 12th is a surprise and that will be our big night in Christmas party because let's face it, it doesn't look like any of us will be going to a Christmas party this year, sadly. Even if you missed Eileen Finn or can't make some of the other nights, it's still worth getting a ticket or buying one for a friend, irishtimes.com forward slash big hyphen night hyphen in because uh, ticket holders will be able to watch all the events back online at their convenience. So from the comfort of your own home, some stuff to put in the diary. And I don't know about you, but my diary has been pretty blank. So it's lovely to have it filled up every second Saturday night. And thanks to everyone who joined us for our first big night in of the second season. Now, the other day I was lucky enough to get a preview screening of an Irish film that made me laugh, made me outraged and moved me to tears. It's a film called Herself and it's a co-production between Sharon Horgan's production company Merman and Element Pictures, the company responsible for things like Room and Normal People. Herself is co-written by Claire Dunn and Claire also stars in it wonderfully as Sandra, a Dublin mother of two children, two daughters who, having left an abusive husband, uh, she suffers flashbacks of the abuse and has nerve damage in her arm from the beatings, is living in a hotel room while she waits to be processed on the housing list. After being read a bedtime story by her two little girls, Sandra stumbles across a YouTube video and gets the idea to build herself a rent-a-kit home despite having no land or money. Her employer, a wealthy doctor called Peggy, who she cleans for, barely knows Sandra but was very fond of Sandra's late mother and in a really gorgeous altruistic act donates a patch of her very large garden for the build and the money to build it. 
uh, a motley crew come together to help Sandra to build the home in the garden. And meanwhile, we see how women in her position are treated by the courts as they try to build their new lives and escape a terrifying home situation alone. I don't know when cinemas are going to open again, but whenever herself is shown in the cinema, I urge all of you to go and see it as I've never seen what is a very Irish but universal story of domestic abuse, homelessness and the barriers placed in front of single mothers like Sandra depicted in such a visceral, authentic way. And I don't want to give the impression it's grim because it's not. It's really uplifting and hopeful and beautifully done. Uh, The film was directed by Philida Lloyd, who made Mamma Mia and The Iron Lady. And watching it, you can tell it was a real labour of love for everyone involved. So I was delighted to talk to the star of herself and the woman who came up with the story, Claire Dunn. Here she is. Claire, thank you very much for coming on the Women's Podcast. I know that this film is going to be something that all our listeners are going to want to go and see. I can't recommend it highly enough. I just think it's, I'm actually getting emotional. It's so moving. Um, it's so beautifully done. It's so well acted. It's so well written. Uh, there's such heart in it. It's about really bleak things, but there's such heart and uplifting and hope in it that I just... Uh, I was really blown away and I just wanted to say congratulations, first of all. And of course, I should mention you as the lead role. Just play it beautifully. But there's a there's a loads of amazing performances in it, too. So anyway, with all that out of the way, all my effusive praise, which is all very genuine. Um, could you tell us a little bit about why you decided to write a piece about what is quite a bleak subject? Yeah, I mean, it was originally, I suppose it was just a moment in time where my friend who has three children and she's a single mother is, is an amazing woman and was forced into a, a period of temporary accommodation and um, there was this moment in my life like when I was in New York just auditioning for stuff and I, I really felt like everything was upside down as if like I was kind of doing the wrong thing in my own path and that like she should not be going through this and it was in that moment of huge kind of desire for something better which has been probably me every day of my life anyway like we can do this better kind of buzz uh it was me just fantasizing that she could bypass all this red tape and just like make it simple again put your hands in the dirt dig build a bloody house it doesn't cost that much it was me googling you know self-build ireland and then self-build ireland cheap and finding dominic stevens the amazing architect all these different things kind of happened in one day but i suppose uh the desire to write like about that very subject that's this difficult subject as well about domestic violence I suppose it stems from maybe just things I've witnessed in my life more than anything. And then also I did a lot of work with Phila Deloitte, who directed the film. We worked in in prisons a lot and I set up some workshops in Mount Joy as well, just like doing like weirdly hip hop dancing with my sister. We were teaching Mount Joy. We were, um, I also did a lot of workshops then with the female Shakespeare company that we set up with with Phila to do our our stuff in, in, in prisons then in England. And I was just kind of, well, shocked and appalled and a bit fascinated by the fact that a lot of crimes that are committed by female prisoners or things that they do are usually out of desperation to get out of a situation of domestic violence or that they retaliate eventually because they're forced into a place of doing that or else they it's either them or, or the other guy, you know, kind of feeling. Um, and then also what they do for their children. There's a lot of people that commit crimes on behalf of their children because they're in such states of poverty. So this awareness was around me anyway. And I was like, that's it. That's the inciting incident. That's the life or death situation that forces her into a place of going, the only person who's going to do this is myself. And so that was, it was kind of like everything that I'd worked on in my career as an actress 
and then everything that I'd witnessed as a person and, and I suppose my desires for a better world, you know, that, that inner activist that's in all of us was just all there and it all came together in one moment of like, I'm going to write this story, I'm going to tell that story. So that was it really. I mean, just for people who might not know, your friend who had to declare herself homeless, just explain how that works. Because if we're if you're lucky enough not to have to ever be in that situation or go near the social services, you're kind of a little bit oblivious to what actually goes on. Yeah, what happens is when you're um when you literally have nowhere to go, uh you 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 can ring places, obviously, like charity bodies and stuff in, in a plea, but actually because the numbers are so high, what you have to do is usually you have to go somewhere. Like I went to Parkgate House on one of my research trips to, to, to find out what it's like. And basically, you actually have to officially declare yourself, you know, homeless. And that way you get in the system to get the temporary accommodation, because otherwise you literally have nowhere to go. And just that process alone in itself is quite a moment, I'd say. If you've spent most of your life getting by, somehow paying the rent and actually, you know, getting the kids to school and doing all that kind of thing. And then you suddenly actually have to declare yourself homeless. It's such a mind blowing thing because you, you probably feel a lot of shame, but also anger because you didn't put yourself there. It's the situation at hand, you know. And um, so you actually have to do that. And then you get um, I think you get a DCC credit card, this kind of credit card that the, the county council give you. And then you have to find a hotel that's willing to accept you. And then that brings in a whole other like crazy load of like division as well, because there is a thing where sometimes they make you enter in a side entrance because they're a little bit like we don't want the real guests to see you. But then a lot of hotels did get better at accommodating people and then gave them places to cook and stuff like that. But in the first year or two, I think it was like pretty bleak, you know, and I do think there's a misunderstanding about like living in a hotel as being this lap of luxury and it's great. You literally can't cook anything. You've got a kettle. You might be lucky. You might beg them for a small cooler fridge, but you're not, you're not keeping any food in there. And that means going out and feeding the kids like with chipper food or just like cheap food that you can find or picking up things in Tesco and then dragging it home while it's, you know, like a hot cooked chicken and then bringing it into the room. Then it stinks up the room that you're in. Then you, you know what I mean? It's all this kind of stuff that, it's not it's not the greatest after a few weeks. And trust me, I was reminded of that because I've just come out of a hotel bubble because I was filming. And I spent the whole time craving just to have like a microwave even or a fridge. I like and that's me sitting there as a little actress just on a film set, you know. <laughs> so you can imagine what it's like being a whole family in one room. I mean, I'll just let people know Sandra is this woman who's had to leave an abusive relationship. Yeah, so. And she, um, like you say, she has to declare herself homeless in order to get on the housing list. And she's with her two lovely children who I need to give a, a mention to for their performances. Yeah. They're absolutely incredible. The two little actors, uh, wonderful child performances. Yeah. They are amazing. They're truly, truly amazing. Brilliant, uh, gifted actors. But anyway, she goes into this uh, hotel, as you described. And the thing is, you have Philida Lloyd directing, who people will know directed Mamma Mia and uh, The Iron Lady. And it's just, a, I know you've worked with her a lot doing Shakespeare as well. But it's that moment when um, we see Sandra go into the hotel room with the kids. And 
it, just the detail in that room. So you're looking at a hotel room and how a, a mother tries to make it into a home, but they're eating their dinner off the bed. You know, there's laundry hanging off the lampshade. There's all these different uh, pieces that just make it just it's look it looks so grim and so sad and so hard for for people because I bet some people think oh if you're in a hotel sure you're grand everything's great but living in trying to make a hotel room a family home you know it's just impossible it's not long-term living like it's there's no way you can live like that but we wanted to show like I actually learned most of what it was like from Erica Fleming who was part of a huge documentary in RTE uh, about uh, I think it was called My Homeless Family that was amazing. That was very, very like true to life. And there are some people that are not in the fancy hotels. You know what I mean? And some, some there was one girl on that program that literally was in a room that had damp in the corners and she had terrible asthma and she was in bits. Like, I mean, it was like something from a hundred years ago, but it's happening yeah. today. So I think it was kind of, it's an interesting one to explore because we're basically, we're in the first world but we're almost dealing with a third world problem, if you know what I mean. It's almost like we should be able to cover food, shelter and water. But we're not covering the shelter bit. How are we how are we not doing that, you know? Yeah, I mean, I should say the film had an incredible response at uh, Sundance Festival. You got a standing oh, ovation, yeah. which must have been amazing, was it? Yeah, it was a milestone in my life. My parents are with me and my partner, Jack. And we I think I, I think it was literally like there's BC and AD after that moment. Kind of thing. <laughs> I think it was like, yeah, the summation of six years. Yeah. And v- Variety magazine, um, which was very famous, gave it such a rave review and said it was the best thing that they'd seen at Sundance. And there's a quote that I'd love to see your response to, because I thought it was a really perfect description of the film. Uh, this writer said what Sandra's trying to do doesn't come easy. And she has trouble at times managing the stress, the obstacles can sometimes feel so enormous that each bit of encouragement she receives sends waves of well-earned positivity through the audience. If the story sounds tiny, think of it instead as a kind of metaphor for all the single women struggling against a system that's tilted against them, which is as true today of Ireland as it is of the film industry and the world at large. When the patriarchy fails, sometimes a woman has to take matters into her own hands. I just think that's brilliant. And I, I suppose that's at the heart of the of the the film, the fact that Sandra, who should be, you know, in society's eyes, a victim, you know, she's been abused by her partner. She's been abused by society. She's not being, she can't catch a break. All she wants to do is provide a good life for her two lovely kids. Um, but nobody wants to help her. And so she she literally takes matters into her own hands. Was that the driving force behind you writing it as well? Yeah, I think only as I went on the journey of writing it, it wasn't immediately. I I began to do things like I'd have a post-it over, you know, on my storyboard. It'd be like the old world, the new world. And then I started to realise it was kind of like the old ways of thinking and doing and the systemic things that are wrong in the system of law and courts and everything really and how things are just accepted. And then how... I actually would love to see it or like a vision of what it could be or even remembering who we really are beyond that stuff that we've told ourselves we should do. It's it's really weird. It's like, I know there's like, there's also the obvious patriarchy versus matriarchy side of it um, as well. And I think eventually it just became, yeah, it kind of became a bit like, oh yeah, I see. Like this is how... I kind of would love to envision the world. Look, there's a nine-year-old in me that like when I discovered there was a such thing as 
um, pollution. I, ha- I cried so much in school, they had to send me home. I was like, when I was a teenager, it was like when I found out the concept of first and third world, I cursed in class and got sent to the pr- principal's office because I was so like, it actually can't be like that. So <laughs> I think... I think through my film, I'm sort of expressing something maybe that I've just wanted to like encapsulate and envision, like not even like selfishly for myself, but also what are the stories we want to tell our children? I kept thinking of like in the film, I play on the, the thing of bedtime stories, right? Like when I'm a mother, I hope to be a mother. And when I tell stories to my daughter or son or whatever, I, I literally want to be able to go, yeah. Like the world was kind of like this, but then we copped on and then we've started to do this. I really don't want to to be telling my kids what I was told sometimes, which was, that's just the way things are. And it was like, that is definitely something reverberating in this film. And that's why I have the flip around of the children telling Sandra a story that inspires her to do something different and tell a new story for the future. And so I... Yeah, I mean, I think what that what that woman was saying in that quote is definitely touching on a lot of things that are there deeply in the story that I probably only figured out along the way myself. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Blacks, a rich, smooth and truly delicious chocolate experience. And listen, talk to me about the domestic violence aspect of it, because uh, we know and we've talked a lot about it a lot on this podcast about how domestic violence has increased during lockdown. So in a weird way, it feels very uh, pertinent, the, the movie, from that angle, because we know that it's increased and calls to the guards are increasing and people are literally locked down with people they can't escape from. And are and it's it's really dangerous for some people. But I think domestic violence is something that we see through the prism of, you know, news stories and a certain way. But I just feel with the film, it it really humanised the situation and it it really showed how the courts and all the whole system is set up against the woman who's actually the person who's who needs the most support. Uh, Why did you want to tell that particular story? Um, Because I just... I suppose I realized as I began to research it and the first person I spoke to in women's aid, it just like just initially in the research, I just, I just realized, okay, hang on a second. It's not as simple as this is the battered woman. You know, this is a woman who is living on a war front. Like that's actually what you're, you're living on. And I think with the pandemic, what's happened is, is like anybody that's been, possibly surviving something a long time because they've had a daily escape or a daily refuge or something to go to they don't have it now and the truth is rising and so I think half the reason that the numbers are rising is because actually a lot of people are realizing the truth so I watched I you know I I watched the um the the report with women's aid there a few weeks ago and it's funny and they were kind of saying like I know the increase in numbers looks bad but there's also something good about that. It means that a lot of people are facing up to it. So there'd be a lot of people that never would have rung or never would have gotten touch. I think there's a lot more awareness now from the Gardaí as well, which is also really helpful. Whereas years ago, it used to be, you know, in Ireland, it used to just be, uh, that's, you know, they're married and that's their own business. And, you know, and there would also be a lot of protecting a man of the community's reputation if they're, if they're any way higher class. 
So now it's all starting to change a bit. And I just read an article there that they're trying to improve the family courts and all that to be a bit more streamlined and a bit more helpful with the whole thing. Because what I was trying to express in this film is also like you're re-traumatizing people sometimes when you bring them into the court. And it's it's like they, they have to sit there and try and tell their story in front of the person that actually took over their brain basically for years. So the very fact that they're even in the room with them means they might edit themselves. Mm. And and what I learned along the way uh, with, with research, lots of just research and reading books about PTSD and, and how you actually heal this kind of thing, is one of the biggest steps for somebody who's been through any sort of trauma, whether you're a, a soldier or, or one of these uh, men or women that have been abused at home, is just saying out loud what happened to you in a very, like, this is, this is actually what happened to me. And just a, f- a few people listening, people maybe that care about you, maybe people that are just in the, but if, if there's just a small amount of people there that actually just hear you say it out loud, apparently that literally helps most of the trauma clear. And then it's about rebuilding your neural pathways and like coming back to yourself and learning how to make decisions for yourself. And that's why I wanted to sort of show the core thing, like show that the abuse doesn't stop just because she's left him physically. If there's kids there, there's an access point. Uh, They get to you. They follow you. They find out where you live, that kind of thing. I also wanted to show that the abuser isn't necessarily just some monster. It's usually uh, generational. It's usually passed on. It's learned or it's an injury in them. It's a a thing they can't deal with in themselves. Like I very much set Sandra and Gary as like people that probably were booming during the Celtic Tiger in their early 20s, going on holidays, big cars, having the crack, like, and then it all just fell apart and his confidence is shot when he loses his job. You know, it was, I wanted to show that it's an intricate thing. Like people don't necessarily mean to become these abusive people either. It's just something that happens and it's worth looking at it in a gray area way. I think you did that beautifully. I think it's so layered, the story. And um, the other thing, there's a sort of a fairy tale. You talked about bedtime stories and everything. There's a bit of a fairy tale quality about the kind of act, great act of kindness that happens in, in the film. I think it's OK to mention it because it happens quite early on yeah. um, where the woman that Sandra cleans for, who's this very crotchety old uh, doctor, um, she finds out that Sandra is trying to have this pipe dream of building her own house and offers her the end of her very long back garden in which to do it. Um, it's it's a gorgeous moment and, and that whole, that uh, sort of uh, drives the, the film in such a lovely way. I suppose that altruism, the fact that people, I mean, in some ways you think, well, that's never going to happen, right? So nobody's going to give their garden away. On the other hand, it makes you think, well, what if people did think like that? What if people did say, I've got this land that I don't need, you know? So it's it's, it's a really, yeah. I just wonder where you got that idea. Well, what I realised on the journey of just creating the story itself, you know, the core elements, I was kind of wondering who, how she gets the land, etc. Originally, the person that was going to help her was going to be more her own age and just like somebody that's, doing better than her and is going through her own thing. And then I realized, no, I want to show something about the older generation sending the lift back down, right? But also in Ireland and in the world, I feel, this thing of owning bits of planet Earth, I mean, get over it. Like, it's planet Earth. 
Do you know what I mean? And we draw lines in it and say, that bit's mine, that bit's yours. It's the planet. Like, and people should be allowed to have enough of a little patch of land just to bloody live and survive on, you know? And I think there's this attitude, especially in the Western world, about owning land and hanging on to it, right? And hanging on to properties that are falling apart, going dilapidated. Well, there's people on the streets. And just like, what are you hanging on to it for? Oh, it'll build a value. It'll build financial value. Right. Okay. So then when it's built up financial value in 20 years time, then you'll sell it and you'll you'll feel much better, will you? Yeah, I'll make a load of money off that. Right. Great. Okay. What? Like, I literally just got to go. It's like this this disease that I've called. I've named it then Iolitis. It's the, and then I'll be happy. And then when I have that that other million, then I'll I'll have figured that out and then I'll invest it in this thing. And it's just like, I'd love to just show an older generation person going, I've actually been through enough in my life to know, like, because the character in our story you discover has lost a daughter. She's had a grief that has told her and also has worked on, you know, she's kind of like a doctor on like war fronts and out in Africa and stuff. She's seen stuff and and she just is is a bit like, not even world weary, but world wise. And she's just going, I could just give her a patch of land and that'll change her life. Like, yeah, feck it. Like, I'm 70. I'll be dead in 10 years. And I just, I love the idea of just showing something about that. That's not even altruistic. It's almost like a bit of feck it. Like, you know, <laughs> what else am I going to do? And, and I think it's just, yeah, I just I just wanted to show that, especially in Ireland, just to show somebody being kind and giving away some land when we get so precious about it sometimes. Claire, tell me about when you finished the piece and emailing it to the very famous and very talented Sharon Horgan. <laughs> Where did you get the thing that this is something that Sharon Horgan needs to see and maybe she'll make it? Obviously, Sharon is the one of the executive producers and it's a co-production with Merman and Element Pictures, which you couldn't get two better people behind it uh but like it's quite uh, you know amazing that you would just email say Sharon would you what, what do you think of this well it was that I had her email by accident and she she ended up in an email exchange with me just saying sorry I won't be able to see you in that theater show and I was like oh my god Sharon Horgan just emailed me and then it was weeks later I just was like I I was I was just after getting the screenplay development award and um, as in the thing that you get from the the, the IFB it was called at the time the Screen Ireland uh, just to develop your piece with them. So you can't have it attached to anyone. But what happened was I, I had a draft and it was sitting there and I was like, I'll just email it to her and say, if you could just put this on your stack of reading to get to at some point, um, I'm going to do this development award thing. And in a few months time, I'll come back with an even better draft. But just to say I'm working on it. And she did this thing where she wrote back saying, oh yeah, I'm sure I'll try and get somebody in the office, but like there is a lot to get through. So it'll probably be a few months. And I was like, oh yeah. Like, and I was like, that's fine. But but when I was reading email, I was like, it looks like there's another blue dot like on the email on my phone. And I scrolled down and it was her saying, stop, ignore that previous email. I clicked it. I started reading and then I didn't stop. Can you chat tonight? <laughs> I was like, oh my God. You know, so it was it was just one of those things that you kind of chance your arm, as you say, in Ireland. And it wasn't like I wasn't being cheeky. I'd, I'd worked on something and I had a draft. It wasn't like I was saying this is definitely a finished thing. It was certainly wasn't at that point uh, or it wasn't like as developed as it became. 
But I think sometimes you just have to kind of reach out to people. Just like yeah. go well, for it. Funnily enough, Claire, I was talking to her earlier for some for another job I was doing. And she was definitely saying that she was, uh, oh, yeah, I'm going to pass it on to the development person. And I think the development person was like, no, I don't really think this is for us. But meanwhile, Sharon had started to read it and was totally hooked and said, I'm just going to override that person in my company. And so tell us what happened then, because Phyllida Deloitte also, uh, because you work with her. uh, Tell us about your relationship with Phyllida. Yeah, so it would have been. um, So we 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 did a few theatre productions together of uh, Shakespearean, all female Shakespearean productions in the Donmar warehouse and so we there was like every year for a few years in a row it was just like there was another production another production um either in London or New York and this one I was in London and I just finished the, the process of the screenplay development thing and Sharon was back on the phone to me she's like it's in great shape like what are we doing and I was like I don't know you know and then somebody had said to Philida in work like oh you know Claire's writing a screenplay you know and she's like oh right and she said like, can I just have a look at it and I'll give you some notes or feedback and I was like yeah amazing like great and um and then eventually she texted me and said I want to direct your film and um that meant cocktails that night obviously (laughs) (laughs) I was with Neve Algar at the time that's my name drop because she's a star now at the time she we me and her were just hanging out at a cinema and um I I was like bloody hell like she's you know she's such a big director of amazing movies I really didn't expect it. And I said, okay, well, let's all have a coffee together, like Sharon and Philida and, and me. So we did, and that was great. They just really got on well with each other. We all had a similar desire for this woman's story, this kind of non-victimy angle and a real determined spirit and or quiet determination rather. And and then Sharon just said, Right, what's your what's your ideal Irish company? And I was like, Oh, come on, element, obviously. <laughs> you know, I was like, that'd be amazing. And within Within a week, Ed Guiney had read it. We were sitting down with him at his uh, London like Christmas party, the London office Christmas party. And it was so funny because I uh, I had just assumed and expected all along like somebody else is going to play Sandra because we need to get financial backing. And then Philida decided to say at that meeting, I want to do this with Claire in the lead. And I know she'd be too shy to say that she'd love to play it herself, which I was. Of course, I would have loved to on some level, but also I was like, let's get this thing made. But Claire, were you writing it with you in mind, uh, you know, with you no, as the lead? No, 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 no. I, I had sent it to a few actresses uh, early in the process, even before, you know, just when it was just like a spit on the wall. Um, I was sending it to a few like more famous Irish screen actresses and and, and just trying to get their interest. And um, in fact, Irish women are so funny, like, because we're so like, uh, we're generous to a fault. Like a lot of them were replying going, Jesus, Claire, would you not try and play this yourself? And I was going, <laughs> I know girls, but like, I literally have no experience and I can't, I'm not going to get the financial backing. So I'd love if one of you could just attach your name, you know? <laughs> and in the end, because it was Philida and Sharon and then Ed's sitting there and he's meeting me and he was just like, of course, of course. Now it did mean it, t- it took a bit longer to get it going. Uh, to get the finance behind it um, and because you weren't as well known maybe as some of the other people that you had suggested to yeah like I mean I had a flying I was having a great time in the theatre I just just hadn't really gotten any screen yet and it was just the way it went but now I'm like really grateful because I think 
Um, if I'd had too much, if I'd any, if I had had any level of fame before then, I wouldn't have been able to do all those research trips. I wouldn't have been able to meet people and like observe people and be a kind of anonymous person. Because that's really what the gift was of this film, was that I got to be sort of invisible and, and like really study Dublin, study people, understand how family lawyers work or child psychologists or economists, architects. I met everybody. And if I was sitting there like and I was as famous as, I don't know, like Charlie Murphy or, you know, one of the girls that are like really up there, they wouldn't have been able to relax. Like, you know, they would have just been like, uh, you're on. Why are you talking to me? <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I feel like in a way it was sort of fated that way. And I'm really glad that, I, that then I got to be the writer of the film. But it was just Villada. She was so passionate about me getting some screen work and also that we had built a great bond together. And actually, we then had Harriet, who was involved in all the female Shakespeare stuff as well. And so we had this shorthand on set that was just fantastic. It was it was so much easier than than any other job I've ever had, where you just kind of we knew each other. We knew what to do. We trusted each other. That synergy between you and um, Peggy um, and obviously Philida in, in directing, like you can just feel that um, intimacy and trust there. It's it's very beautiful because the film's kind of shot. I'm not saying it's it's not like documentary style, but there's a sort of an element of that to me. It felt very intimate. Would that be fair to say? It felt very fly on the wall, especially things like the hotel room and stuff like that. Was that deliberate? Yeah, it was. It was really, really deliberate. I didn't realise it at the time. I think it was um, like while I was doing it, I wasn't, you know, I, I was in it and trying to do it. And then Philida has said uh, in the last year in interviews and then and then to people when I'm in conversation, I didn't realise that that's exactly what she was doing because she said it was so like because I had researched and created Sandra. And she said, so by the time we were filming, like Claire was like, it was like slipstream. I was just kind of inner. And I would just know what to do as her all the time. So it was kind of very easy to just use the camera more as a witness to something that's just happening authentically and naturally. So I had a feeling of documentary sometimes because the camera also just goes from her point of view a lot as well. So it had that feeling of a reality TV show, probably a little bit where when you're just following one person around with a camera kind of thing. Um, but I think that was deliberate because we wanted to show that this is definitely a fiction, but it's also based on fact and stuff that happens in, in people's lives and that it's it's yeah, that it's that it's a reality that could actually happen, you know. Well, I mean, you've been named as one of the top, I think, 10 screenwriters in the world by Variety as well, which is amazing. <laughs> I, what, a, what an amazing thing to happen for your first. It's your first um, full length piece like that isn't it first full length yeah with the help of Malcolm Campbell it obviously became a much better screenplay but it was nice to get the credit of yeah a top 10 screenwriter from Variety um I did text Malcolm actually started by going aren't you supposed to be on this with me (laughs) and said no he said no 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 it's story by you so you created it from the beginning so really you know you have to take credit where it's due so he's very gracious that's lovely um tell me about you growing up Claire and becoming an actor it wasn't really in your family or anything you're one of uh is it six girls growing up in Ballantyre um were you a show busy family at all or well actually my dad's side now and actually my mom's side there's definitely a bit of music there like my granny um uh, my mom's mother, she played the guitar and the um, accordion, which is mental. Like who play, who could play that? I don't know. And then my uncles and uh, a couple of my uncles 
and my cousins and stuff on my dad's side, they're all very musical. So uh, John Donne is quite a famous composer and musician. And um, acting wise, I think I was sort of, you know, the first certainly in my generation. And I don't think there was anyone above me now. So I kind of I had to really find my way in, you know, um, and I had to go to a drama school in order to get a showcase and, you know, go the good long haul. But I think it was it was a great adventure. (laughs) Just even trying to do it. Was it through a school play that um, you were sort of first spotted or your talent was first recognised? Yeah, like I remember being in uh, a musical Oklahoma, like in transition year. And I remember the director of that. She actually had lived in London and worked in London. And and she said, I would never, I would never advise somebody to get into acting. (laughs) Like unless I'm really sure, she said. But I actually think you should think about it. And then, and that was a huge boost to my confidence now because I, I think I was like 15 at the time and uh, and I was quite shy probably in normal life. But once I got on stage, it was like, oh, I can, you know, so that was a huge boost to me, I think. Yeah, definitely. And tell me about going to study then. Was it in Wales? That's right. Yeah, in Cardiff. Yeah. Yeah. And the Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama. That was kind of They're a very fun. unusual thing for, you know, a young per- woman to do from Dublin to go off t- to Wales to Cardiff to study drama. I mean, were your friends kind of going, are you serious? What are you doing? What are you doing? Well, actually, it was because I couldn't get in. Like, I'm I'm one of those underdogs and I've had to take hits. Like, it's always like I have to get a few rejections and then I have to be like, OK, I'm really going to have to go for this. So realistically, it was just that I, I couldn't get into drama school in Dublin uh, the, the first couple of times I tried. So I I went for trainers for winners you know and I went for uh, <laughs> a few of the ones in the UK one year it was kind of my last ditch attempt I was like right that's it if I'm going for this I'm going to go for the UK and I'll go for the Trinity one and um, and then ironically of course I did get into Trinity and I got into Royal Welsh College but by then I was like I think I just wanted to experience some new stuff and become a grown-up really and live in my own place and not be at home and and um, and look, it was at the time where education wasn't as expensive in the UK and you could get a grant in Ireland to help you with your foreign studies. And um, I got through financially by the skin of my teeth. But it was only because I was working a lot on my holidays and, and through college. And then they also, Royal Welsh College are amazing at helping uh, underprivileged um, students. Not that I was completely poverty stricken, but I really struggled from second year, middle of second year. It was, it was really dodgy. So they got me in. Um, they got me this lovely grant called Sophie Silver Lining Fund. And it's actually, it's a very sad story, but basically the parents of a drama school student who died tragically in a car accident, they set up this fund and it's literally, they award it to people that are struggling through drama school or they can't, you know, get quite enough to finish. Um, and they give them a grant every term uh, just to pay for their rent and accommodation and stuff. And so I was really, really lucky like you know like I had some hits and then it'd be like really tough and I'd work really hard and then I just had glorious things like that happen to get me through the last minute and I was like yes you <laughs> got through in terms of coming into contact with Philida then and the whole Shakespeare thing would that would you consider that kind of one of the richest working experiences you've had oh big time it was kind of like my working standards and what I believed stories could do suddenly exploded like it was very hard to look at scripts the same way after that and to look at parts the same way. Because look, you know, we're, we're post the the She Said book coming out and, and Me Too and everything. I just think it's like it's all out in the open now and there's no there's no like sitting on the casting couch and having to beg for parts that are not even great, 
right, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think even at the time that we started the journey with the female Shakespeare, it was like we were so scared. We were breaking forth in very new territory, and it was like, can we, can we do that? Do you think we could? Like, and it was, it was so funny. Like looking back, I'm like the barriers we had to break within ourselves to go yeah like I can take up this space and yeah I can do this and it was just such an incredible journey I can't explain like and now I I go that was actually formative because I think that's where maybe I realized my voice as a storyteller in general and I went okay I am a visionary I want to tell the stories of a new generation I want to, you know, the Gandhi thing, like be the change you want to see in the world. Like it's pretty hard to do that in real life, but I think it is though. But I was thinking, okay, but through film and through storytelling, we can at least create touchstones and at least open the valves in people's brains and hearts and souls and go, imagine though, like you could even try this. And that's why I have this thing of like, yes, I want to create stories that are like, visionary and positive and hopeful but they're rooted in a realism like if you if you watch things like and there's this amazing documentary which you would love and you have to see 2040 and it's basically Dan Gamow he acted he was an actor that was in Raw and he's from Australia and he created this documentary and it's basically a vision of the world in 2040 and if we used all the solutions that we know we already have right now for climate change and energy supply and all that kind of thing um, so it's using solutions that we already have. I wonder if we put them in the right direction, what would it look like? And so you got all these amazing um, people that create games and software like that to show what the world would look like if we used harness the energy in the right way. And it's amazing. And it's all in dedication to his, his daughter, his, his little girl, because he was saying, similar to me, he wants to tell his kids a new story of, of, of what we're about. Like, um, and it's sad a bit esoteric at moments but it's actually so not like when you see his film you're like uh why aren't we like doing it you know what I mean so I feel like um I and and himself and a lot of there's a lot of storytellers at the moment waiting in the wings and a lot of documentary makers and also just a lot of people in Dublin I realized when I researched this film they are the people with the solutions they're the planners the engineers the architects the um the people in women's aid people like that family lawyers they know how to sort this stuff out. Mm. It's just about getting together and like letting it happen. You know, yeah, it's not like I, I'm not. Yeah, I sound like I'm some sort of like I believe in utopia, but I do. I do have a real belief in this after what I've been through on this film. Yeah, there's an amazing bit in the film where she basically Sandra goes to the authorities to basically plead her case and say, look, it's going to cost me thirty five grand. But you, but I cost you in hotels. I cost you much more than that. She works it out over the years. It's going to be a hundred and something grand, and and it's such a logical argument. And of course, she gets turned down. But it's that kind of moment, isn't it, where it makes sense. It makes sense on paper. Everything makes sense, but because the system doesn't recognise this logical, rational idea, it gets sort of just poo pooed away, and it's so yeah. depressing. It's just like it is a bit of computer says no, but it's also that like there's. <laughs> You know what I mean? But there's like that speech was based on figures of the time, like in Dublin. And then there's also like, uh, you know, my friend, she's actually a really dear friend of mine, Laura Kelly, who played the woman behind the desk, you know. And 
and she, she was the computer says no woman. Uh, but also what I wanted to show in the film, which you can't, like you can't show every aspect, but I always love showing that some people are just tired and they're just stuck in this job and they've been doing the same thing for years, but they're just, it's like people get stuck in a habit and they get stuck in a way of thinking without even knowing they are. And then all of a sudden it's like, like they, they they become the wall, like they become the wall to something breaking through and they don't even know they are. And if you could just crack it open a little bit, you know, things will get through. But like, look, I'm not saying it's all bad. There's great things happening out there at the moment and 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 it's all good. But like, I love just getting to express those sides of things in, yeah. through the through the stories. Tell me about uh, your relationship with Sharon Horgan from that accidentally being in an email thread with her to working on the film to like, you obviously have a great relationship now. She speaks so highly of you. What do you think of her? I think she's like this. She's the example that I, I've been following around. Like she is, she is the kind of Peggy character. She, she just literally champions uh, people that are trying to make it. And, and, um, she believes in the underdog and she 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 looks after the unusual people as well. Like she's also very like detailed and she just cares. Like she just cares a lot. She has a massive heart. She she just I don't know, I can't really explain. She's like a warrior and she answers every bloody email and message. I don't know, she's machines as well. But I think um the best thing about like getting to know Sharon has just been in the last couple of years getting to like hang out with her normally as well. And I learn a lot uh, from being around. I did a writer's room with her as well a while ago. And I, I've i learned a lot from being around her. I think she wouldn't say this, but she's actually very calm under fire and she enjoys what she does, really enjoys it. And I that's the biggest thing I learned is like enjoy the process enjoy every single bit of the process and even when it's low just be like oh crap like I've lost it today and say it out loud and give into it and you know leave it alone and then come back to it and like she has this thing of embracing the journey and I think that's the biggest thing I've, I've ever learned from her. Uh, that's a beautiful and uh, she speaks just as highly of you so it's a definitely a mutual appreciation society listen the very first scene in the film is a really cute um the girls are putting on makeup on Sandra and there's a lovely moment about uh, a birthmark under your eye and I wasn't sure whether that was um makeup but I see that you do have a birthmark I do yeah and um, I've had a birthmark on my left eye all my life and it often gets mistaken as a black eye so <laughs> the fact that I've now written this film where I'm playing a woman who is like you know the woman who walked into doors <laughs> Yeah, it was sort of like it was sort of like yeah, literally. Oh, I read that actually. <laughs> yeah. um, I think basically, genuinely, it was sort of to clarify that it's not a black eye, you know, for the whole film because it wouldn't make sense. Um, but also the initial uh, aim at the start of the film when I was doing the first ten pages, you know, the initial sort of like you got to get a lot in there. And I always used to dream that I could just show Sandra and her kids in their own little universe before it's whacked in with um, everything that Gary brings, uh, unfortunately. But that was kind of the setup. And actually, it was it was Rose who produced it in BBC and and then Philida and everyone. They just said, do you know what? Like, is there a way that we can weave in something about your birthmark that would like tie in with your desire to have that world with the girls? 
And so uh, Philida was like, like, what do you say to your nieces and nephews and all this kind of thing? So I started banging on and telling stories about the different things I say to them. One day we were having dinner and she was recording me. And then she said, now, write the scene. I've recorded it for you. <laughs> and I said, oh, my God, you know. Um, and I was a bit scared. Like, I was a bit scared about that because I was kind of like, Jesus, it seems like the fucking Claire Dunn show. But it's actually not. It's to get it out of the way. So it's not, you know, getting in the way of the story. It worked really well, but tell tell what Sandra says uh, to the kids about why she has her birthmark under her eye. Oh, yeah. When I was in God's pocket, he said, uh, I need to be able to find you or something. Jesus, you think I'd remember you online. He's going, I'm going to put a little mark on you so that I'll be able to find you because there's loads of Sandras in Dublin. <laughs> um, and basically, we, what we're also trying to show, though, is that we're trying to say there's loads of these kinds of women in Dublin, you just don't know it. And um, so there's kind of an underlying thing there as well to set that up. And I think just before you go, Claire, like I think loads of those women are going to go and see this film and they're going to see themselves in a place they never see themselves. And that's why I think I find it very moving because that scene in the courtroom where Sandra says to the judge, you're asking the wrong questions. Like, why are you asking me why I filled out a form wrong? Why aren't you Why are you asking me why I, why I didn't leave? Why aren't you asking him why he didn't stop? hitting me and those kind of things like those that's a kind of uh, glimpse into a world we just don't get to see but you you know in media and in journalism you hear a lot of these women's stories and you see just what they're up against and how the system doesn't come in and sort of wrap its arms around them and say it's going to protect them it kind of puts up barriers in their way and it makes life really really difficult and I think what you've done with the film is you've you've thrown the curtain back on that and I think it's going to be helpful for people who maybe didn't understand it before and also for people experiencing it who will see that's what it's yeah. like, you know. And also to see that, like, they're not, like, pathetic and then they go shouty, shouty. It's not that, like, because there was this whole thing on the radio one day where judges were, there was this whole thing a while ago, a couple of years ago, it was on an RT radio thing, actually, I think. And there was judges were very confused at how some of these women that are in this situation, right, in the courtroom, they're they're afraid of their life of your man in the room. But the minute it's said that they might lose their kids, they become tiger mamas and they scream or they like, you can't take my kids. And it's because the reason they're in that courtroom and the reason they're leaving him, everything they're doing is for their children. And then they're saying, you might take them off me or you might split the custody in a way that's unfair or whatever it is like you know it's, there's all this misunderstanding and miss and also unfair portrayal of these people I mean both sides as well they're just kind of seen as like pathetic people pointing and blaming and all and sometimes like the story is much more deeper than that and there's I really wanted to honor these women and honor these men as well that have been through things like that where they're really, really going a long haul and fighting a long time to just get what they deserve, which is all they want is just like some safety and some peace. And yeah, that's it. Like, I mean, it's just, I think, I think basically the portrayal of the battered woman is a very, look, it's such an archetype or something. And I want to redefine it. I just want to redefine it. I think you've done it beautifully, really. Well done. Congratulations on it's just a gorgeous, and I do want people to understand listening that it isn't as grim as maybe we're uh, depicting it. There's a lot of light moments. There's a lot of Dublin humour and wit and 
uh, Dublin looks great, I have to say. And it's, it's lovely to see, you know, a modern, fresh, diverse cast film, you know, because it's such a rich tapestry of the, the people who come along to sort of help Sandra build that house. All sorts of people, you know, um, from all sorts of backgrounds. And that's really uh, showing the story of modern Ireland, modern Dublin, which is another great angle to it. What else are you working on? What's your next film? Um, well, I'm actually going to be acting for the next while, which is lovely. So that screen work is coming, thank God. Right. <laughs> um, which is lovely. So I'll just be living in Dublin and filming away for a while. And what are you working on? I don't know if I'm allowed to say at the moment. So I'll just say I'm doing a TV series and I'm sure everybody will know in a few weeks time. Um, and then I'll also be writing over the next year, I hope. So I'm I'm trying to get get going on a on a series an original series that's my that's my plan anyway and I've accidentally started writing a play I don't know how that happened but sure that that won't happen for a while will it? but uh <laughs> that's it yeah just just trying to stay happy and and do do my work like the usual you've had a very um good pandemic in some ways work-wise and this the film coming out and you know even though it's been very strange it, it's all happened in a lovely way and people are going to get us to see it now yeah, I just hope the lockdown lifts and if it doesn't, sure, we'll just delay it a bit and, and just just like try and release the, the film into cinemas that can actually have people in it. Look, I just hope people would love to see something that might restore something in them. It'll rinse you. You'll have a few <laughs> Kleenex tissues on hand. Definitely but by can. the end of it, you feel, you know, yes, we can kind of buzz. And also, uh, oh God, that was a bit American. Yes, we can. Well, it's okay. It's American, but it's Barack American. So it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I do think, um, like, as you say, we made out that it was quite grim, but I think at the end of this film, there's something about redemption and that anyone can be redeemed uh, and there is hope yet. God help us. Yeah. Thank you so much, Claire. Uh, It's been wonderful to talk to you. And I'm just so delighted for all of you making such a brilliant piece of work that I think is going to resonate deeply with people and also make people laugh. It's um, dramedy. Is that what it is? Is that what we call it? (laughs) Thanks for having me on this, though, because I used to listen to a lot of your podcasts as part of my research. So thank you for having this. God, I feel like I have a tiny, tingy, tiny bit of that herself. You do. You (laughs) got so many things with like, the women who run Rape Crisis Centre and oh. Women's Aid, etc. Like those podcasts, I used to sit there and make notes. Like, so thank you for keeping up awareness about everything. Good to hear. Well, thank you very much for all your activism and all what you're doing, because I think it's a really important film. And I know our listeners are going to go when we can go to the cinema. They'll be in there watching it. Um, so Claire Dunn, congratulations and thank you very much. Thank you. That was Claire Dunn there and the movie is called Herself. I hope you'll all get a chance to watch it soon. That's all we have time for. As always, get in touch on social media at IT Women's Podcast or with any comments. Uh, you can email us thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves until next time and I'll talk to you then. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.